prairies, vegetarians, and climate change deniers. We're talking about climate actions on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, also known as Science Mike, and this week we are unpacking the utter panic from my recent episode on climate change and the most recent IPCC report regarding that. So what do you say? We'll do a podcast. Let's get it started. I was recently talking with my good friend and colleague, I think I can say colleague of a podcast co-host, my good friend and colleague, uh, Hillary McBride, and uh, we were talking about something that's come up on Twitter a few times, and that's why there's never been an Ask Hillary version of Ask Science Mike, like a special episode, so we're going to do that. We're going to do an Ask Hillary McBride, Ask Science Mike team up. So if you have questions uh, that would be appropriate for a licensed and practicing psychotherapist and PhD candidate in the discipline of interpersonal neurobiology, uh, or, you know, Hillary has expertise in uh, embodiment and eating disorders and uh, psychology from an intersectional feminist perspective. If you have questions that you'd like to send to Hillary, just send them in to this show like normal using AskScienceMike.com. But then just let us know that the question is for Hillary. We will put those together and uh, pick the best ones and do a show. That show will come out when we have enough questions. So <laughs> if you want to hear from Hillary sooner, send in a question sooner. Um, and we'll do like we've done before with other folks. We did it. Ask Pete ends. That was lots of fun. Ask Bible Pete, I think we called it. Uh, so we'll do an Ask Hillary McBride episode. Also, I do want to let you know that we are just getting started with the Cosmic Campfire Online Book Club, which has been a lot of fun so far. We're just now entering into week one. You can still be involved in that. And that is uh, pay what you want. So if you don't want to pay anything, you can pay zero dollars and that's fine. Or if you've got a couple of dollars to throw at us, we appreciate it. Uh, really active community forming around that. And uh, some of the discussions are so heady that I don't even know what people are talking about. And I have to consult uh, research resources in order to decipher the conversation. But then other things are, are quite accessible and experiential. So I think there's something there for everyone who's kind of wondered about mysticism and science and what we do with faith now you can learn more by going to cosmic campfire dot party that's cosmic campfire dot party and then on the events front which you can see all my events anytime you want by going to asksciencemike.com and clicking on events uh, you'll find that november 16th and 17th the liturgist gathering is going to be in minneapolis minnesota uh, I'd love to see you there for the Liturgist Gathering. We've been planning uh, some new sessions and new topics because we know some of you have been to multiple gatherings. So we have new things planned for Minneapolis. We also 
will be in Nashville, November 30th, November 30th to December 1st. Uh, that one looks like it's going to be uh, definitely a sellout. So if you don't have tickets yet, don't wait. There's only a handful left. If there are any Nashville tickets left, you can find tickets to both by going to theliturgistgathering.com. And then on February the 10th, this is kind of an early announcement. I'm going to be doing something called Theo Ed, uh, which is going to be really cool. It's at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And I'll be giving a 20-minute talk, and so will uh, Peter Enns, and so will Diana Butler-Bass, and so will Patrick Reyes. So um, that's a pretty good lineup, actually. (laughs) Uh, So if you're in the Atlanta area, you wondered if I was ever coming back. Yes, February 10th, 2019. You can get uh, more information at AskScienceMike.com. Uh, But what do you say? Let's get on with the show. Well, a few weeks ago, I did a special episode on climate change called How Screwed Are We? (laughs) And that was uh, digesting the information from the most recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. And uh, boy, did a lot of people panic based on that episode, which is great. Panic is actually warranted uh, in regards to human activity and climate on planet Earth now. The problem is, if all we do is panic, uh, it's not going to end well for our species, or in fact, most species on this planet right now. So action is required. So this week, as a follow-up to that episode, uh, I took some of the most common questions, questions that I got you know, dozens of people asking in different forms and uh, picked, you know, a a kind of representative question from each of four big categories and put a show together. Uh, So this episode is all about uh, climate change, but as opposed to the status of the science on climate change and what's coming, which if you want to hear, go back and listen to the How Screwed Are We episode. This episode is all about questions about actions that we can take to mitigate and prepare for climate change. Now, these are simple, entry-level questions. Um, And don't worry, we're not going to cover everything we could cover on climate change in one episode. That's impossible. That's why I'm going to be doing regular, frequent episodes on climate change from now on, on Ask Science Mike. Uh, So we're just going to start with four questions. And as I've mentioned earlier, I've already reached out to some climate scientists who've agreed to come on the program that will be happening in the future, probably on the other end of my loony, absolutely wild uh, travel schedule for this fall. Uh, So as we move to the winter, I'll have time to actually put those episodes together. I didn't want you to have to wait, though. So I went ahead and weighed in on questions that I thought I could answer, starting with this one. Hi, Mike. I studied environmental engineering sciences in graduate school, and so I understand our global predicament on a deep level. I moved to Huntsville, Alabama with my husband when he began work as a rocket engineer at NASA. Very good brag there. I'm I'm genuinely impressed. (laughs) That's me talking, by the way, not the questioner. Two of the hand Two of the handful of climate change denier professors that regularly get referred to by Republican officials are based here 
at the University of Alabama in Huntsville campus. Their influence is strong, especially in the city's conservative churches, since they're both fundamentalist Christians. I feel so helpless. I know that this issue is partisan and polarized everywhere, but it seems especially so here in my city. I feel like the missing piece here is that so many climate change deniers in my area don't attribute their denial to a misunderstanding of science, but to their Christian faith. I hear a lot of God is in control or it's all going to burn one day anyway. Denial is a matter of tribal identity. That is bonkers to me as an ex-evangelical who is knowledgeable about scripture. I try to point to things like the Babylonian exile to say God certainly does allow terrible things to happen, but I've not found that helpful so far. How can I communicate with people who have had climate change denial imprinted upon them as part of an ethic of white supremacist privilege protection rather than as part of a fact-based scientific argument? We are so often speaking past each other. Am I wasting my time? I know the Bible well, but I'd love advice as to how to set up a conversation within a scriptural framework so that perhaps folks can hear me better when it comes to the science. Also, any tips on how to cope in a deep red state where policy activism usually goes nowhere would be so appreciated. Thank you, Melissa. Well, Melissa, I would start by saying um, policy advocacy seems to go nowhere until it suddenly does. Um some of the most dramatic and powerful actions of the civil rights movement in the United States happened in Alabama. So uh, sometimes the most oppositional soil, or I guess the most oppositional cultures create good soil for change and transformation. Um, but on to your larger question of, of talking to people about climate change, you asked if you're wasting your time, and I think you might be wasting your time. Here's why. It may seem like there are two sides to the climate debate, and that is absolutely a great narrative to sell if you're a politician trying to motivate your base to get out the vote. But the reality is that people's views on climate change, even in the United States, are quite nuanced. There's there's not some binary of people who who are active and, in, and and making a difference, and that's half the people, and then there's half the people who say, no, it's not true, the Bible disagrees. There's no data to support that kind of a binary, even though that's the conversation we have in our culture. One 2009 study identified no less than six, yeah, six major points on a spectrum of views about climate change. Here's what those six points look like. 18% of people on one end of the spectrum are alarmed. Those people believe climate change is a serious problem. They've taken action personally, and they support national actions, government-level actions to combat climate change. Next on this spectrum, we have the concerned, 
which is 33% of the population, the largest group by far. The concerned believe that climate change really is an issue, and they support a national response, but they haven't taken any action personally. As we move in towards the middle, we find the cautious at 19%. The cautious believe climate change is happening, but don't see it as a personal threat, and so they feel no sense of urgency. The disengaged come next at 12%. They really haven't thought about climate change, although they are the most likely to say that they'd easily change their mind on climate change when compared to any other group. The doubtful make up 11%. They're evenly split among those who think global warming really is happening, those who think global warming is not happening, and those who say they have no idea. Many within this group believe that if global warming is happening, it's caused by natural changes in the environment, or in other words, it is not caused by human activity. And they believe global warming won't harm people for many decades into the future, if at all. And the doubtful say that America is already doing enough to respond to the threat of climate change. Finally, on the opposite end of the spectrum from the alarmed, we have the dismissive at 7% of the population. The dismissive are actively engaged in advocacy about climate change, just like the alarmed, but in the other direction. They either don't believe climate change is happening at all, or believe that the causes are non-human and unavoidable, and therefore oppose personal and national actions on climate change. The dismissive are the most likely to say that we can't sacrifice economic progress for the sake of climate change or environmental issues. Now, when you look at these six points along a spectrum, the alarmed, the concerned, the cautious, the disengaged, the doubtful, and the dismissive, you see that most of the conversation in our media, be that broadcast media, be that news media, or even social media, is happening between the alarmed and the dismissive. Then you see the doubtful and the concerned cautiously weighed in with less frequency. But you would see that most people aren't actually involved in any sort of dialogue or action in either direction on climate change. And that presents us with a major opportunity. In your question, when you reference people who say that God is in control, or it's all going to burn one day anyway, you are talking to the dismissive or the doubtful, the 7 and 11% respectively of the population who doesn't want to take any additional action on climate change. And that's not a big opportunity. The big opportunity in creating real change, real change for the protection and preservation of of life on earth, and indeed human culture and civilization itself lies at other points on this spectrum. If instead of trying to convince the dismissive or even the doubtful, we focus our energy on convincing the concerned to take personal action, 
both in lifestyle changes and advocacy, then you're almost at half of all people. <laughs> and that's a huge opportunity. If you get the cautious to become concerned, you gain partners in supporting political action, supporting national action. If you combine the alarm, the cautious, and the concern, you have a clear majority of people and politicians will take notice and companies will take notice. And then finally, there's a real opportunity to get the disengaged, that 12% who really just don't think about climate change at all, to realize that climate change really is a problem. These are productive areas to focus your energy. Now, that's not to say there's no point in discussing things with the doubtful or the dismissive. I find myself on stage in rooms with doubtful and dismissive climate change folks all the time. And I still give my talk and I still take their questions. But there's no doubt that the majority of my energy is focused on driving the concern to action and the cautious and the disengaged into paying attention and accepting that climate change represents one of the most significant threats to human civilization and indeed human life that we know of. Now, if you go to AskScienceMike.com, I will link to this research called Global Warming's Six Americas that you can peruse for yourself, and it also has helpful points uh, and understandings for how to talk to each of these six constituencies about climate change. Our next question also arrived via email, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, like you, I am deeply disturbed by the recent climate change report from the IPCC. I am personally looking at ways I can reduce my own carbon footprint, and this has led me to do some research on the subject. Something I have frequently seen reported is the correlation between animal agriculture and climate change. My question for you is how big of an impact does animal agriculture really make on climate change? And what are the ways that I, as a consumer, can make better choices? Is there an environmentally smarter way to eat meat? I would love to hear your thoughts on this matter so I know what to do before the shit hits the fan in 2040. Thanks for all the work you do. You've been an inspiration to me and many others close to me. Matthew. Well, Matthew, your question uh, was by far the most common question I've gotten in recent weeks for Ask Science Mike. Uh, Like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of variations of this message. And I get it because the climate impacts of our diets in a capitalistic society are very, very complicated. Uh, Think about it this way. Less meat is better generally, but so many um, affluent vegetarians or low meat consumers uh, buy a variety of uh, vegetables and plants that have to be shipped in from all over the world. And uh, we know like right now, significant areas of rainforest are being cleared to make room for all the avocado demand, right? So... uh, (laughs) 
I, I don't want to see rainforests get cut down so that we can grow more avocados. So this is a really, really complicated thing. And uh, I, the solutions are not simple. There's no simple solutions. You know, it's easy to become paralyzed because, oh gosh, it seems like you can't do everything right. And the fact is you can't do everything right. So forget what the best diet is and go for better than what you're doing now. (laughs) So I might make some recommendations here that aren't ideal, and I know that. And the reason I know that is because I've seen differing opinions from qualified experts in direct contradiction with each other. So I already know I'm going to get feedback on this answer, and I look forward to it. I'll offer corrections and clarifications as appropriate on the show in the future. But I want to equip you, Matthew, and all of you listening to make better food decisions in regard to the climate. Now, the first thing I would say is that not all meats are created equally. In terms of climate impact, cows are generally the worst. So beef is the worst meat you can eat. And then other meats get better or worse. Well, none are worse than beef that I'm aware of. Uh, anyway, so let's kind of look at five ways that you could structure your diet and look at what that does in terms of your carbon footprint. We're going to look, I'm getting this from shrinkthatfootprint.com. Uh, they've done some some data gathering and they've shared the resources. Um, so a significant amount of carbon does come from diet. Um, now there's some there's some debates on on exactly how agriculture compares to transportation, for example, based on some methodological flaws in research. But I'm going to go with what we can be confident of. And what we can be confident of is the carbon footprint for an average American based on five different diets. So we're going to look at the tons of CO2 emissions for a given diet. So uh, we're looking at 3.3 tons per year. If you're someone like me, who's a meat lover, you eat a lot of meat, a lot of beef, a lot of lamb. In fact, you eat more beef than any other meat. That's not me currently, but that was certainly me a few years ago. And if that's you, that's 3.3 tons of CO2 emissions per year. If you are average, an average person, cuts to two and a half. If you eat no beef at all, but still eat other meats, 1.9 tons of carbon emissions, CO2 emissions. Vegetarians, 1.7. Vegan, 1.5. So you'll see what a big difference cutting beef alone makes to your carbon emissions. Um, The jump from average to no beef is much bigger than the jump from no beef to vegetarian or vegetarian to vegan. Um... And there's a significant jump from being a meat lover to an average consumer of meat. So one thing you could think about your diet is just moving one click. So if you're a meat lover like I used to be, moving towards average. If you're average like me, go to no beef. I'm actually kind of almost on the threshold of no beef now. I'm eating beef much, 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 much less than I used to. I'm not sure I'll ever make the click to a full-on vegetarian. Uh, but I am constantly trying to reduce the amount of meat that I eat. 
So different foods have really different carbon impacts and uh, beef and lamb are just the worst. <laughs> followed by chicken, fish, and pork. Followed by dairy. Okay? Um, that's 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 kind of how it works. Um, so when we kind of look at how those uh, emissions stack up, uh, which I'd encourage you to do by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking the link to shrink that footprint, you'll get a lot of details about diet breakout. And you'll see that in general, just the less meat you eat, the more carbon efficient the calories you eat are. Um, now, there's, I, I already know some pushback I'm going to get about the role that cows and cow-like animals play in the environment. Don't worry, that's coming in our next question. We're going to talk about that. But I feel confident saying eating less meat is better for carbon emissions. I feel very confident with that claim, with the given caveat earlier that kind of globally sourced vegetables are nowhere near as good for carbon footprint as locally produced vegetables. Um, and also don't, uh, don't miss the importance food waste plays here. So if you're kind of in the no beef or headed toward vegetarian area, but you throw away a lot of food, that's not really helpful. In fact, some experts say that um, frozen vegetables uh, can be competitive with fresh vegetables when you account for food waste, right? So with frozen vegetables, there tends to be much less food thrown away than when people are cooking with fresh vegetables. Uh, so you've got to kind of accommodate food waste into your personal decisions here. So that means eating less meat and being more careful in proportioning how much you purchase compared to how much you consume, which might mean you need to start tracking how much food you throw away. Uh, if you're throwing away tons of vegetables, um, you might be better off going frozen packaged than fresh, which surprised me personally. Now, in terms of when we talk about the actual impact of animal agriculture on climate change, it's not just about cow farts and belching methane. Uh, people, I've heard pushback on that. You know, they say, well, methane breaks down that quickly. It's not that big a deal. What I mean is in terms of producing a calorie of food or 100 calories of food, whatever amount of calories you want to talk about, um, things change dramatically for cows versus plants. So you need 90%, that's right, 90% less cropland to produce an equivalent amount of calories if you eat a plant compared to eating a cow. You produce 96% less greenhouse gas emissions, and you reduce nitrogen-based fertilizer by 94%. So there actually are dramatic differences in consuming plant-based versus beef calories. Now, most meats are going to be more efficient than beef, but still less efficient than plants in terms of land used for agriculture, greenhouse gas emissions, and nitrogen fertilizer production and consumption some grazing animals absolutely are essential for ecosystems we'll talk about that in the next question but if you need simple recommendations 
for how to make a reduced climate impact with your diet, I have three. One, eat less meat than you are eating now, especially beef. Two, look at how much vegetables you throw away and make better purchasing decisions. And three, strongly preference local vegetables to vegetables that have to be shipped or flown into your area before being consumed. And those three things will take you a long way from reducing the carbon footprint of what you eat. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Mike, maybe you can't see the forest because of the trees, but you also can't see the prairie because of the forests. One of my callings is to work with native plants and ecosystems. I'm from an area where prairie grasslands were historically dominant, but have now become the most rare and endangered ecosystem. They've nearly all been converted to agricultural land and forest. Prairies are actually the ecosystems with the highest potential for biodiversity in our area. I keep hearing you talk about deforestation and its link with climate change. And I hear Michael G., he's referring to Michael Gunger, my co-host on the Liturgist Podcast, talk about how pained he is every time he sees a tree cut down. I agree with the point that you're trying to make, but maybe a bit more nuance is in order. Here I am trying to remove encroaching trees to preserve rare habitats and save endangered species while you're making it sound like I'm on the wrong team. Isn't the real issue here vegetation density and biomass? There appears to be a false binary we've set up in some of the research between agricultural land and forest. In reality, there are a few more options than that. I've read that because of the vegetation density and exceptionally deep roots in a tall grass prairie, it can store more carbon underground than a forest can above. Tallgrass prairie is actually supposed to be comparable in carbon sequestration potential to a tropical forest. Why doesn't anyone ever mention that? I imagine the same goes for water cycling potential too, though I've yet to dig up any good research comparisons. Evapotransportation is related to vegetation surface area, another great strength of the prairies. And then to open an additional can of worms, If prairies are actually just as effective at moderating climate change as forests are, and they would naturally support and even be enhanced by uh, in their effectiveness by moderate stocking rates of grazing animals, maybe we also need to have a bit more nuance in our discussions of eating meat. Animals can process healthy but inedible natural ecosystems into something we can eat. That sounds like it could be used to everyone's advantage. There may be other cases to be made for veganism and replacing healthy ecosystems with irresponsible models of agriculture is obviously a bad deal, but it seems like there are more discussions, more options to discuss here. Thoughts, Gabe E. P.S. See you next month at the Liturgist Gathering. Well, Gabe, I think I agree with everything that you've said. Um, I've actually read a lot about prairies and grasslands in climate change and their potential to help reverse climate change. So I'm totally on board 
I would say that hitting talking points in a podcast, especially when uh, deforestation isn't the primary point, is tough because things move so fast. Being a podcaster has made me really sympathetic to newscasters and journalists because of my work. I have way more time to unpack and offer nuance than the average newscaster, but I still find that for the sake of time, I have to blaze past important ideas or even edit out things that I've said for the sake of time. People probably think the Liturgist podcast is long enough as it is, and here we are. We've already crossed the half-hour mark, and we're on question three in this podcast. Uh, So time is a limited resource, and I apologize for editing uh, out my agreement with you. So I want to be clear for you and for everyone listening. Whenever I talk about deforestation, I'm talking about cutting down natural forests that are appropriate to local ecosystems in order to create croplands or pasture for agriculture. I'm talking about tropical rainforests. I'm talking about uh, forests in the Pacific Northwest where they're naturally occurring, Uh, those, those beautiful and brilliant forests. I am not talking about cutting down planted trees like planted by timber companies, for example, in areas that should naturally be grasslands or prairie grasslands. In fact, I actually heard an NPR story once about a landowner who cut down all of his cypress trees uh, that had been previously planted by another owner in an area that experienced frequent drought because cypress trees were so thirsty, uh, they were drinking all the water out of the soil when it cut them all down, the native grass is restored and the once dry riverbed started to flow again with a huge boost to local flora and fauna. So I'm not talking about putting trees everywhere, putting trees places they don't belong, places that trees aren't native. I'm talking about deforestation removing natural forests. And in fact, I know that our grasslands have been hit hard by the removal of large herbivores, at least in the U.S., because of what we see with buffalo. As buffalo numbers were reduced and, in fact, collapsed, our prairies started to turn into deserts. Desertification took in. And desertification is terrible for climate change because deserts have very little uh, carbon sequestration potential. Uh, And they also reflect sunlight back out so readily. They heat things up. They provide like a one-two punch in creating climate change. doesn't mean deserts are bad. We have natural deserts all over the earth. But the fact that more and more land is becoming desert is a huge problem for climate change. So the solution is we need more plants, especially native plants. Now, whether that's grass or shrubs or trees, depends on the local ecosystem and the local climate. As the climate changes, some ecosystems are going to migrate. This is not a simple thing of, of simply planting what used to be there 100 years ago. And then even when we, we restore local plants, they don't necessarily thrive without local animals to support them, including apex predators. Um, you know, when we restore native plants and native animals, it shapes the land in positive ways. When we reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone, we saw the wolves and also a resurgence of mountain lions and a resurgence of grizzly bears. 
trim down elk herds. And then that brought back uh, some, some critical trees like willow trees to the environment, which then grew the number of songbirds in the area. And we saw rivers start to go into old flow patterns because some beaver populations were bounded. Now, of course, that recovery is not complete. It may take more than lifetimes to recover because it's far easier to protect existing ecosystems than it is to restore them, which is why I talk about deforestation so much, but I'll make sure in the future to also talk about the loss of natural grasslands. And I still support cutting a lot of meat from our diets because for the protection of natural forests and, in fact, the protection of natural grasslands, we just eat too much meat. Our natural ecosystems anywhere in the world don't need one and a half billion cows. Our natural ecosystems don't need one billion sheep or 19 billion chickens or two billion pigs. Human meat-based agriculture has completely reshaped the biomass of the world, the speciation of our wildlands. When we look at mammals on Earth, we find something remarkable. 60% of all mammals on Earth today are livestock used in human agriculture. 36% of all mammals on earth today are humans and 4% of all mammals in the world are wild mammals. So what I'm talking about do when I talk about cutting the amount of meat we consume is lowering the number of animals that are livestock and increasing the number of mammals that are wild. Let's bring back Buffalo and maybe we can eat some of them but let's let natural predators eat those buffalo and, in fact, eat more of those buffalo than the humans do. When we look at birds, 70% of birds in the world are chickens and other poultry. 30% are wild. So our agriculture systems are taking over the very forests and prairies that you and I both care about. And a diet based solution will help that. One of the most powerful things I can do to change the balance between livestock and wild animals on earth today is to consume less meat. I immediately reduce the amount of demand and therefore increase the natural resources available to wild animals. So when you hear me talk about deforestation, Gabe, I hope you hear and understand uh, that I I really do have a nuanced perspective. Um, And I appreciate the opportunity you've given me here in being able to communicate it with everyone who listens to Ask Science Mike. Um, And I'm not saying everyone needs to be completely vegan, but I am saying and stand by the notion that almost everyone needs to eat less meat than they eat now. And almost everyone needs to eat less beef, especially 
than they eat right now because our forests and our prairies depend on large wild herbivores and the ecosystems that they play a part of. Okay, our last question is one I I got dozens of time as well. Hi, Mike. I came across Ask Science Mike and subsequently the Liturgist podcast about a year ago, and I can't overstate how grateful I am for your voice in the world. Listening to that first Ask Science Mike podcast brought me such a sense of relief, like running into a fellow traveler who speaks my language after years of not being able to communicate with the world around me. I know you've been through a lot of pain and upheaval, to create the platform you have today, so I'm grateful for your willingness to do so. Those of us out here in Deconstructionville, thank you. Here's my question. I recently saw this story about a carbon-neutral fuel being made from carbon sucked from the air, and then uh, there's a link provided to National Geographic. It almost sounds too good to be true, but I don't know the science behind it or how much energy it takes to turn the CO2 into fuel. Is this a possible future of clean energy? I also look forward to hearing from experts on how to talk to climate change deniers. Though, to be honest, I don't see that we would ever change the perspectives of my staunchly Republican relatives. Supreme Leader Trump says he has a good instinct for science and knows that climate science is wrong. And therefore, there's no such thing as global warming. Anyway, God wouldn't allow us to destroy the planet, so we're all good. I'm still shocked daily to find myself in a social reality where facts don't count. Thank you for all you do, and I'm looking forward to the upcoming episodes. I would just go ahead and note that recently uh, President Trump did accept that climate change is happening, uh, but continues to minimize and ignore the role human activity plays in that climate change and reinforce the necessity of protecting the economy from environmental lobbyists so you win one you lose a dozen Uh, in terms of your carbon fuel your gas made from atmospheric co2 i've read a lot of articles on that uh it is a completely valid process it works basically you're making liquid fuel like diesel or gasoline by capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then combining it with hydrogen from water, um, gasoline and, and all forms of petroleum are hydrocarbons. So the main ingredients are hydrogen and carbon. So they're getting those elements, CO2 from the atmosphere, and pulling the hydrogen from the water. Uh, boy, there's a lot here. That process takes energy, and one part of the process is very expensive in terms of energy, and that's performing electrolysis on water to separate hydrogen from oxygen. So in the limited trials they've done, they've gotten that energy from renewable sources, but if you scale that up to the capacity to replace the carbon fuel that we pull out of the ground all the time, I don't know that you can get enough electricity from renewables to keep that process carbon-free and renewable. And if you you know, burn coal or something to get the electricity for the electrolysis to get the hydrogen to make the fuel, well, hell, why don't you just keep pumping oil out of the ground? Now, assuming they have some 
solution to that problem, we also run into the problem that this fuel is not cost competitive with existing oil. It's just not unless we put a tax on carbon emissions, they say is about $20 per ton would do. Um, and they've, you know, the pro- it's going through peer review, so that may or may not be plausible. I don't know. Uh, but an important thing to say is this would not be clean energy. It would be carbon neutral, potentially, given the caveat of where the electricity for electrolysis comes from. Um, but it wouldn't be clean. You'd be pulling carbon out of the air, putting it into gas, and then putting it back into the atmosphere. <laughs> So um, this could help us, you know, get to carbon neutral. It could help us continue to use some existing fossil fuel infrastructure as we transition and certainly rapidly recycling carbon in the atmosphere, I I think, is better than pulling it out of the ground and burning it and not sequestering it or recapturing it in any way. Um, So this could be one piece of a transitional plan towards a sustainable energy infrastructure with a couple of big question marks around cost and where the electricity comes from. Uh, we, we, we already have a surging demand for electricity worldwide. And if we increase that further, uh, trying to convert atmospheric carbon into gasoline, uh, I, I, I just have a lot of questions here and a lot of questions that don't have answers yet. So we need to watch this closely. We need to look at this cautiously. It's easy to get excited with these kind of blue sky technological developments. They don't always pan out. A lot of things work in the lab and then don't scale up to industrial levels. That happens all the time. Uh, So if this works and it really is carbon neutral, you know, could be great, especially for the developing world. Um, but this is not like an ultimate solution to the problems of carbon emissions and energy on Earth. This is at best a temporary band-aid while we engineer sustainable solutions to our global energy needs. If there's anything you get from this week's episode, it's I want you to understand it's not hopeless. There are actions we can take to combat climate change. There are actions you can take today to combat climate change. So if my last episode on climate change left you feeling hopeless, I hope this episode starts to help you feel, as I do, that there is hope that we can work together and make a difference. Ask Science Mike is brought to you by some very generous people who support the program financially. As little as a dollar a month, or if you're feeling very generous, $5 a month makes this program possible. If you'd like to know how you can make Ask Science Mike possible over the long term, go to AskScienceMike.com and then click on the Patreon icon, uh, and that'll show you how you can join the community of the people who also get to pick the questions Uh, for this show. Uh, I'd like to thank Greg Nordeen for uh, producing Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Andrew Galucky for his work in pre-production. And as always, I'd like to thank Jeb Botterford 
for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I can't wait to talk to you next week.